To get ourselves back on track and uh, stop being as uh, frivolous as we are, we like to talk all things legal on the Tab Breakfast Show and our sports lawyer that helps us out trying to wade through some of these topics that make their way from the dressing room into the courtroom is Tim Fuller from Gaydon's Lawyers who's joining us this morning. G'day, Tim. Morning, Tony. I was just thinking what a hard act it is to follow the statue of David, so uh, <laughs> we'll try and get things back on track, yeah. <laughs> It's never easy, uh, but we do our very best and we smile through the tears, tears of laughter this morning. <laughs> Where are we going to start? We might talk about uh, the ongoing battle between the NRL and the clubs and the Rugby League Players Association with the negotiations on funding and things like that and the talk of this record deal. Uh, hopefully that, uh, that announcement might just settle things down because it looked like at one stage we could be heading back to almost like a Super League breakaway competition. Yeah, there was plenty, plenty of heat in the topic, wasn't there? I suppose the, the thing for the clubs is that, you know, with the introduction a number of years ago of the soft cap, basically money from the NRL to help them run their, their clubs and the administration, they were obviously, you know, pitching for more money there. I mean, the salary cap, as it's been reported, will probably only go up about a, about a million dollars. So when the collective bargaining agreement is finally, um, you know, signed, we might only see an increase in the actual salary cap for players of a bit over a million dollars. But what the clubs were really, really, you know, fighting hard for was a big, big increase um, with the funding to run their clubs. And that's been reported that they want uh, $5 million, and they're, and they're very, very close. Apparently, it's around about, you know, $4.87 million. So if they get to five, apparently they're going to sign off on, on the deal and... Um, you know, happy days. They'll go into next year cashed up with all the money that they need to run their clubs and the players will also get an increase in the actual salary cap. And, uh, Tim, sort of, was this a more acrimonious, uh, this negotiation with the Players Association and the clubs and uh, the commission than normal or was it just a normal argy-bargy that comes around every couple of years when uh, new deals are struck? Well, it's interesting, Andrew, because I think there's a number of CEOs that played a more active role and have been playing a more active role in relation to negotiations and you know, discussions with um, either the Commission or the NRL, and that's you know, led by some you know, powerful CEOs from you know, Souths and um, you know, Penrith and so forth. I mean, they represent, obviously, all the clubs, but mm. they have been the ones that have been at the, at the coalface. Um, the Rugby League Players Association... Um, well, they are there to represent the players and try and get the best possible deal, and that's mainly through the cap and and, so, and some of the other you know concessions that come in the collective bargaining agreement. Really, this you know argy bargy was all over money, you know, for the clubs to run their administration because it, it's it's got to be kept in mind that you know prior to you know, Peter Volandis coming into the game and prior to you know, more recent um, increases in the soft cap, you know, clubs were losing money. They were, they were bleeding, to be quite honest, but they're less successful clubs. And so, you know, when you've got guaranteed funding, you know, under the funding agreement to actually run your club, and that's obviously a huge relief, you know, for clubs and, and the administration. So, look, I think in the end we're going we're gonna to have, like, you know, happy campers on, on all sides, players, um, the game and also the clubs. So um, it would seem that a, a deal is imminent and, and then the, the, the agreement can be signed off. Um, and, and, and really, to be quite honest, um, it's, it can't be signed off quick enough because we've now entered the new 
season. Like the new financial seasons, the NRL runs one November through to the end of October, and really not to have a deal in place at this time, um, you know, with next year around the corner is is, is um, probably not good enough. So hopefully they get a deal done very quickly. Tim, some would look at it and say the players are employees of the club or contractors. Should they have as much power? But then others would look at it and say, well, if you don't have any players and any superstars, you don't have any clubs, you don't have an NRL, you don't have a competition. Yeah, so look, in the end, um, you know, I mean, there's not really too much to complain about, you know, from a, a game perspective in the NRL because we don't have the situation in Australia where our player associations have the clout, if you like, that, say, player associations do, you know, overseas. Like in America, for example, I mean, it's not even player associations to be honest, in, in the States, they are unions mm. and they, they strike, I mean, they, they run a hard bargain and, and, you know, lockouts and strikes, you know, in American sport is, are very common. You know, we, we've never really had that situation. I mean, the, the kind of threats of, you know, breakaway and, you know, new Super League and all that sort of stuff, I think most people saw that for what it's worth as just, you know, really posturing. I mean, there was never, ever seriously going to be, you know, a breakaway. I mean, that's just, you know, um, the types of things that happen at a negotiation table. Um, but, you know, in, in the States, that's not the case, is it? I mean, we've, had, we've had competitions over there where there's been, like, you know, 12-week lockouts and the, and the competition doesn't start until a deal is done. So I think we're lucky, you know, in that, in that sense in Australia. And, and, you know, normally, you know, these types of, um, you know, standoff and so forth gets resolved pretty quickly. And this one seems to be resolved, you know, really quickly after a little bit of posturing. Uh, Tim, moving away from uh, Rugby League and obviously the World Cup of Soccer, as big an event as there is in the world, uh, I think it might even outrank the Olympics when it comes to actually viewership, um, is starting in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and in a rather crazy set of circumstances, we had that old rogue Slet Blatter, the former FIFA <laughs> chairman, all of a oh. sudden running the old I was outvoted line. It shouldn't have been oh. held in Qatar, which uh, we can put that aside for the moment. I think that was Sep getting his conscience ready for to meet his maker. But the actual consequences of the World Cup being in Qatar, what are they? Yeah, I love that description, Andrew, the old rogue. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was as kind as I could be to him. Oh, absolutely. Look, I think, you know what I think is going to happen? It's going to be really fascinating. <clears throat> okay, so um, we've already seen players, you know, players such as Jordan Henderson, who's come out and said, you know, you're not going to stop, you know, protests in Qatar. I mean, I think we're going to see players, you know, um, the silent-type protests are going to happen throughout the tournament. And, and FIFA have already forewarned, if you like, the players to say, you know, concentrate on the football. But, you know, that's almost like waving a red rag to a bull because, you know, FIFA and people like you know, Blatter and so forth, you know, where they've been up to their eyeballs in, you know, graft, and corruption and nepotism and so forth. You know, I, I think you're going to see um, players, you know, from a number of countries, you know, really express a dissatisfaction with, um, you know, the awarding of, you know, Qatar with this year's World Cup rights and, of course, you know, Russia pre previously. So, you know, as far as, like, you know, the way some of the things that have been expressed with the readiness, if you like, of Qatar to hold the Cup, I mean, you know, we're already hearing reports that, you know, when fans are, you know, welcomed into the country for the tournament kickoff. I mean, there's not there's not even like you know adequate adequate accommodation for them, and it's just mm. you know really underlines the point that you know they're not 
not a big enough country to hold the World Cup because, as you point out, it is the biggest, it is the biggest sporting event on the planet. Mm. Um, so we're going to have like fans that have to commute to Qatar. Um, there's apparently even things like you know, tent accommodations have been set up. Some of the stadiums have, um, you know, it's quite ingenious, but have been made through basically shipping containers put together. So, yeah, we're going to see all of this. Like the world spotlight is going to be on Qatar. <clears throat> I think players will take a stance and express a dissatisfaction with, like, obviously, the human rights record of you know Qatar as a country. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And it's kind of what a lot of people were thinking, you know, not big enough, the time of year, um, all that sort of thing. Do you think all this coming out now on the very eve of the of the tournament, will this lead to further investigation post-tournament, do you think? And do you reckon this is a line in the sand for this sort of thing, for choices of venue moving forward? Yeah, dead right, Will. I mean, like, you know, it, it'll, it'll come out, you know, in drips and drabs. I mean, like, obviously, you can't do much, you know, leading up to the World Cup. I mean, they, they have the rights and... Um, yeah, there were still obviously teams up until recent, you know, recent months still qualifying. All that's done and dusted now. You know, everybody's packing their bags and getting ready. Socceroos were first, you know, first came off the rank. They expressed their, their displeasure collectively as a team. Um, I, I think you're right. I mean, I think you're going to see some, you know, amazing things that'll be, you know, revealed over time. I mean, we've we've seen documentaries on the, the atrocious work conditions um, in Qatar for foreign workers, but I think. You're actually going to see probably, you know, legal action taken, whether it's by, you know, um, individuals or by, you know, groups within countries, you know, for what they've endured over, you know, last X number of years leading up to the World Cup. So, yeah, I, 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 don't, I think, and, 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 you know, in one way, yes, the spotlight's going to be on Qatar and the football. That, that's fantastic. But the spotlight, you know, will also be on their, you know, their human rights record and, and, and also just their current policies and laws in relation to, you know, the LGBTI community and so forth. And, Tim, uh, from World Cup of uh, Football, we've got the T20 World Cup, of course, on, and it's uh, taken the news now. It's into the uh, final stages. But gurgling around in the background is this proposed change to the uh, Code of Conduct for cricket, which could allow uh, David Warner to come back and hold a captaincy role were the selectors to think he was the man for the job. Can you just tell us what's involved and where it currently sits? Yeah, it's really interesting, Andrew, because they're looking at they basically discussed and agreed and are proposing an amendment to the Code of Conduct um, and how a player, you know, following a match um, referee report and ultimately a breach notice that's issued, like whether how long their, their sanction is able to, um, you know, be applied. <clears throat> and they're looking at some form of, you know, redemption, that if a player is to go through a period of time is to put forward evidence that they have, you know, redeemed themselves. I mean, who decides that um, time will tell? Um, you'd, you'd imagine it'd have to be someone, you know, independent from the from the tribunal. But I looked at the code of conduct and their and their sort of their, if you like, appeals process and so forth. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know how they're going to do it. To be to be honest, I mean, um, ultimately you've got disciplinary proceedings that go from A to Z. You know, you're charged, you have a hearing. If you don't like the result of the hearing, you appeal. You know, all of those things are pretty normal. When that appeal is over, if you do appeal, you know, you accept it. That's one of the things that's under, under contract, that you accept that the decision of the uh, sport is final and binding. You can't really take it anywhere from that. So how do they slip in, if you like, you know, this redemption um, rule? So, 
that's going to be really interesting. I mean, when you're given a sanction, we all understand, like, you know, whether it's, you know, four weeks off the field or it's six months or a life ban. I mean, that's it's going to run its course. Where in the process do they say, well, OK, he's halfway through his sanction, but we, we feel that he's redeemed himself by doing A, B and C. So not sure how it's going to work within the actual code of conduct, but that's what's being proposed. I suppose we'll see more detail as time, you know, as time goes on. Well, it's a really interesting point. I mean, my view is, uh, and using the Warner case, if he, uh, how does he show redemption? Does he show redemption by just acting like any normal cricketer for a number of years? Or does he actually come mm-hmm. out and say, this is what happened. I threw Cameron Bancroft under the bus. I wrecked his career. Um, I made it very difficult to Steve Smith as captain. I apologise profusely for everything I've done. <laughs> now, if he's got to say that, I don't think we're going to hear it. Look, dead right. And, and look, look, in the end, um, that's a very good point because you have the opportunity at a hearing. You have an opportunity at an appeal to provide all of that information. So so what are we going to have a bit of a half-baked approach where players, you know, keep a few cards in their deck, mm. um, don't give all that information like at a hearing, and then later they say, oh, actually, you know what? I'm going to redeem myself by giving this information and that should go towards my sanction being reduced. I mean, really... The time to provide, provide information is at a hearing or at an appeal if you don't like the decision. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's a very valid point you make. Should they have to go back, uh, perhaps, you know, in a case like a Warner, they've got to give something back to the game. Coaching at a junior level, it's almost like paying community service because, as we've seen, monetary fines don't seem to matter a great deal when you're on huge dollars like that. No, and especially with cricket where you can just pick up your bag and go from really one comp to another. If you can't, I mean, for example, if you were to, if you were to be actually banned from playing in Australia, well, you know, those bans don't apply across to other, you know, other competitions where actually in other sports we do see that. Um, you know, I mean, obviously Andy Doping's a classic example where a ban applies right across the world and, and applies across all sports. But, you know, it's actually possible in cricket to be banned in one country have to pick up your bag and go and play like in a T20 competition somewhere and still earn pretty good coin. Mm. I guess if they can reverse a, uh, a boxing title 31 years on, they can do anything. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, oh we're we all going to go back through our histories, are we? And go back to, <laughs> I, I, I swear I won that 100-metre race back in the under-12s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That will be interesting. Tim, always a pleasure to have you on the show. You gave us uh, a great insight into a number of topics there this morning. And as I said to Andrew earlier, I love the way you can break some of these legal issues down into layman's terms for us. Great to have you as part of the Tab Breakfast Show family. All right. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Andrew. See you, Will.